Welcome to the Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 72. I recorded this intro a couple days before my surgery, but I'm predicting that everything went as planned And now I'm recovering at home with my beautiful wife, Rhiannon, taking care of me. And one thing I can guarantee is that I've earned my ex every day studying Dr. Berardi and Precision Nutrition. How's your New Year's commitment going? Well, if you've got a calendar on your wall, I already know the answer. You're crushing it. And if you're new to the podcast and need some inspiration starting your chain of success, go to hoopcommitment.com and get access to my free five-day leadership course. Every day you'll ball handle with a professional basketball player and learn about the three levels of leadership. Now today's episode is with keynote speaker, performance coach and consultant, and best-selling author, Brett Bartholomew. He's the founder of Art of Coaching, and his experience includes working with athletes in both the team environment and private sector, along with members of the U.S. Special Forces and Fortune 500 companies. And I got introduced to Brett's work through his best-selling book, Conscious Coaching. I thought it was a perfect mix of science coupled with the art of building relationships with athletes. And so today I picked his brain on creating buy-in, how to define your coaching identity, and connecting with different personality types. Here's Brett Bartholomew. Brett, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm really excited because one of our GU strength coaches actually turned me on to your book, Conscious Coaching, and I loved it. And I just think it's the perfect balance for us strength coaches to have someone that's interested in the academics, but also has been in the field to talk about leadership and coaching. So I'd love to find out what got you interested into digging into the art of coaching. Yeah, Mike, I mean, it's pretty organic. My story in the book lays it up pretty well for anybody that hasn't read it or heard of it or heard of me. So when I was a younger kid, about 14 years old, I was a very competitive athlete and had a core circle of friends. We had played sports together our entire life, right? That very much that sandlot mentality. But about the time I had switched high schools after my parents had gotten to divorce, that core group really turned to drugs and some pretty hardcore drugs at that. And that led to me not really having much of an outlet other than training for sport, of which I went down a supremely deep rabbit hole. You know, at the time, there wasn't a lot of education on sports performance, nutrition, or what have you that was as widely available to the everyday person, let alone a 14-year-old kid as it was today. So, you know, it led me down this spiral of just anger, anxiety, a little bit of depression, because again, I I didn't really have an in-group anymore. These people were doing meth and, and cocaine, and, you know, my parents were getting in the midst of a divorce, so I just trained all the time. So long story short, ended up compromising my health pretty significantly, was hospitalized for a year of my life. And while I was in the hospital, despite being surrounded by doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, what you found was a very common theme. Despite all their technical expertise in their field, they weren't really able to connect with a lot of patients. Now, these were patients that had been hospitalized for a myriad of issues some self-destructive behaviors because their husband left them. Another was a junior Olympic wrestler whose father had beat him. There was all these issues that led to people 
participating in self-destructive behaviors, but a lack of communication skills really rendered a lot of these nurses and medical practitioners' expertise useless. So long story short, and I don't want to bore the audience, we can certainly get into it if you'd like, but when I had gotten out of this hospital, I knew two things. One, I was fascinated by the human body because I had learned a lot about the body when I was in there, and more importantly, through my own research of where I had gone wrong, where I had compromised my health. I mean, we're talking about heart, kidney, and liver function being massively depleted, borderline cardiac arrest, what have you, but also communication and psychology. Why do people do the things they do, right? There's a lot of stuff I witnessed in the hospital, a lot of stuff that when you're in a hospital for a year, you have a lot of chance to self-reflect. And, you know, it just carried over pretty nicely, you know, through my years of working in the collegiate side, professional side, tactical side, what you recognize is no matter the performer and no matter what their physical prowess If you don't understand the nuances of their mind, the psychology, human behavior, you're really not going to get anywhere. So that was the inciting incident in my childhood that really put me on to health, nutrition, sports, performance, psychology, and communication, collectively, the art of coaching as a whole. Well, that was a great part about the book is I think as coaches, we all feel like we have this intuition on how to work with people. And most of the time, it stops there. And your book does such a great job of touching on the science piece of it, the behavioral science part, the psychology. There's actually a skill to coaching. And so I love how you broke it down. And then not only are you able to show the research, but you give us a roadmap and tools that we can actually use and apply. One of the big things that I got out of it is as a basketball coach, as a parent, we all want buy-in from our team. But most of us don't even know how to define buy-in or even how to get it. So How would you define buy-in and what are some things that coaches could do to help create that buy-in to the program? Buy-in straightforward is trust plus commitment. And we all know trust is important, but commitment is especially important because when you coach or you lead somebody, there's really going to be one of three outcomes. There's going to be commitment, there's going to be compliance, or there's going to be resistance, right? Commitment is when somebody feels good about the task and the nature of the relationship, which is what you want. That's going to facilitate longer term commitment towards an end goal. They're going to have great effort. They're going to apply great skill. They feel good about it from a task and relational standpoint. Compliance is a bit different. Compliance, somebody may do it, but they may not feel 100% like they're really behind or bought in to the relationship side. Maybe they understand it's a task that needs to be carried out, but they don't really trust you or vice versa. Maybe they trust you fine, but you're asking them to do something that they don't really quite understand. And we hear about stories about that on the news all the time. A seemingly trustworthy individual got mixed up in the wrong thing, asked somebody to do something. And because they had a relationship, they did it. It wasn't a great idea. It wasn't a great outcome, so on and so forth. And then resistance is fairly straightforward, right? That's where somebody vehemently is against either you, your initiative, or both. So defining buy-in collectively as trust plus commitment gives people an idea of like, really, where are we at? And I got attacked a little bit by one or two stodgy academics when I came out with the book that said, buy-in's a bad word. We're not salesmen. And, and listen, I get what they're all up in arms about, but that in itself is a little bit of a lie. Coaches may not like to define themselves as salesmen. I mean, I know I never wanted to, but you absolutely sell. You sell and you educate. You're selling people daily that doing some different forms of training, right? Let's say you put 400 pounds on your back is going to make them more resistant to injury or that a drill that you come up with is actually going to help facilitate, improve neuromuscular coordination. And you could say, well, that's not selling, that's science, right? But like, 
They don't know that science. You're having to communicate it to a language and they understand. And again, when we think about words in general, let's say buy-in was some devious word. Well, when you look at words, Mike, every word has more than one definition in the dictionary as it is. There's not a singular universal definition of a term that everybody agrees on. Even Oxford has multiple definitions, but there's also this tertiary example of even if I have the core definition of a term, it may mean something else completely to somebody of a different background culturally or what have you, or to somebody that's got different experiences. And we know plenty of examples of terms like that. So when you look at that, buy-in is a colloquial term that most people understand. We don't feel it's harmful. And we think that, yeah, trust plus commitment, who can't get behind that? Let's not sit here and go over the nuances of what term is what, because that keeps us away from the big picture of progress. Well, I love that you addressed it in the book because we use the word buy-in. And so I think that just proved to me that you really believe in the art of coaching, because if that's what your coaches are using, if that's what your coaches want, then you have to be able to give them what they need and what they want. So I love that you use the word buying. And if someone has a hang up with it, well, fine. We'll use a different word or different terminology. Right. And they probably haven't coached that much. Being offended is like the new pastime. And really what you find is most people, when they have some kind of aversion to something, it's usually because they have something counter to that, that they're trying to sell or what have you. And you just kind of learn. It's the nature of the game, man. You know, I put out a book and it's the man in the arena. If you don't want to be criticized, do nothing, say nothing. But I don't think there's a coach out there or a leader out there that doesn't understand that buy-in is a term that's recognized and widely used. So, I mean, it's the same with art of coaching. We had to define that because you look at the literature and there was no real definition. So we use a couple different derivations, but in general, we look at the art of coaching as the ability to identify, analyze, and influence any variable that impacts human performance. And when you look at the variable that impacts human performance the most, It is what is the fundamental aspect of coaching, communication. But I think that even communication seems nebulous to some people. Uh, If you ask coaches, and the research shows this, how do you get better at communicating? Over 90% of coaches in certain populations will say, well, just by coaching. Mike, you're married, correct? Yep. Right. I would love to say that you and I get better at being married just by waking up and being married. That's not the case, right? And you look at all the manuals out there, whether it's the NSCA, and I'm CSCS certified in RSCC, so it's not a knock on them. Uh, The UKSCA, the ASCA, there's nothing that helps coaches understand how to adapt from a communication standpoint, which is why we host live communication workshops where people can come and actually get evaluated, just like a movement screen, but think with communication, verbal, nonverbal, all these things. Because if coaching is founded in communication, and communication has over 100 years of research and it's multiple derivations to its name, why is this sold as a soft skill? And more importantly, why are coaches not trained in it and they're just expected to learn on the job? Well, you learn some things on the job. You still got to understand the nuances that you're not taught. It just seems odd. It's like somebody learning how to snatch just by lifting and picking up a barbell. Like that's not realistic. Yes, that can happen, but it can also be better by being coached and trained. Well, I love that you keep coming back to that idea of a skill in coached and trained because I think if we talked about the buy-in and then it followed up by a quick fix, this is how you do it in one day or one week, I think that would leave people with a bad taste in their mouth. But I think the proof's in the pudding. Your book has blown up because it takes time to cultivate, takes patience. One of my favorite quotes, it wasn't yours, <laughs> you used it in the book. You said, patient is not the ability to wait, but how you behave while you wait. It's going to be challenging for everybody, but what kind of things allow you to be patient and breathe and trust the process? 
think just understanding the underpinning psychology of behavior change, understanding that these things don't happen overnight. They don't happen on your time. Rarely does anybody change their mind or behavior based off of a direct suggestion. They have to feel like it's their own. One thing that we did after the book that not many people know about is we did a follow-up course called Bought In. And in that, we take research done by an individual named Dr. Gary Uckel out of the University of Albany, who studies the ethical use of influence in power-based situations in leadership. And what we did is we adapted his research to really show coaches how you can use nine to 10 different forms of influence tactics, again, all ethical, that the word influence tends to be hyper-sexualized or demonized based on society, right? All influence means, if you look at power and influence, and these are actual empirical definitions in the leadership side of things, power is one's ability to bring about change in another person's psychological environment. Were you able to exert power over their behavior or their choice? Influence is the use of that power. So influence is a tool, no different than dumbbells, kettlebells, barbells, what have you. But most coaches tend to use one to two predominant influence tactics and then wonder why they fail. One is they use rational persuasion. Here's the data. Here's the stats. Here's what the research shows. Mom, quit smoking. You know, you can get cancer, right? Or, hey, I know you don't like squats, but if you can increase your quad strength just 1%, that's a 3% decreased risk in ACL injury, non-contact, all these things. And then there's also what's called an inspirational appeal. And that's that Al Pacino, any given Sunday in the locker room, kind of, we fight for that inch, right? These are the things most commonly used in coaching. But what nobody stopped to ask is, are these the things that most athletes actually respond to? Most athletes are not as into the training as we are. They just want to play their dang sport. And that doesn't mean some don't, right? There's always somebody listening that's like, that's not true. I use research all the time and they love it relax. We're not saying it never works. What we're saying is that it's not going to work for everybody. Another example that the research shows is we tend to use inspirational tactics, talking about team goals and bigger mission, right, Mike? And, and all those things are things that you talk about and they're, they're great. They're altruistic. They make a point. They're valued. But there's also, when we look at not just the leader, but the followers, you have to look at their traits. And there are athletes that have higher subclinical levels of narcissism, something that we talk about as a dark personality trait in the book. And my second book's going to focus really heavily on this. That's Inside Scoop, by the way. I've never mentioned that on a podcast. And these are athletes that aren't really worried about team goals. They want to be the fastest. They want to get the most points. They want to break the record. You know what? At the end of the day, who are we to say that that's bad? right? Because we can't act like one doesn't serve the other. We need some people to have subclinical levels of narcissism. Again, subclinical. I'm not talking about a bona fide narcissist. I'm talking about essentially what the leadership research talks about is an elevated confidence. Because otherwise, who the heck would want to be the fastest man or woman in the world? Who would want to compete at the highest level? So there's just a lot of fallacies that I think people fall into that lead to them not having patience because they think that they just use a magic word or a phrase or they put the right stat in front of somebody's face and voila, they're going to get it. And that's just not how coaching or leadership in the real world works. It's not that clean. Well, I'd like to maybe start at the beginning because one of the things I liked about the book, as you said, the idea of before you coach someone else, you have to know thyself. And so you mentioned defining your training philosophy before defining your coaching identity is a mistake. So what does it take to define a coaching identity? When you talk about your identity, and I have it in my phone, so I'm actually going to pull up this note. It was 2014, and we had been going through staff feedback. And the feedback was kind of wishy-washy, Mike. It was always kind of the same thing. 
nobody wanted to make anybody feel bad, right? It was always like, oh, love your passion. You could do this better, that better, but nothing was really like in depth. And so I remember I was a layover. That was on my way home for Christmas. It was one of the rare times I got to go home for Christmas. You know how it is being a strength coach, right? And I wrote down and I promise it's in my notes. I save it. I can send it to you. Thoughts and reflections. Why do I do this? If you listen to a bunch of strength coaches talk, and I'm sorry, guys, but I'm going at you and it's tough love. You hear the same crap. Oh, I want to make a difference. I want to do this. I want to be a servant-based leader. And that's all well and good, but that's not really a D answer, right? So I put to make a difference in the lives of others. All right, well, what does that mean? I accepted no BS from myself. I was like, well, I also want to master a craft that I care about and I want to afford my family and I a life that we want. So then I was like, all right, well, what do you mean to make a difference and what kind of life do you want? So I went down the list. Well, I want one that's more dynamic yet stable, dynamic, and I'm reading this verbatim, in a sense that we can afford to go on trips, see concerts, create memories, but stable in the sense that we have a rhythm and balance. What do you want to be? Professionally, I'd put, well, I'd like to be a thought leader and a soundboard for practicality and coaching. You know, I came up during a time where everybody was trying to sell some magic answer, right? There's either the crowd that has the magic answer or the crowd that's just angry at everybody, the purest crowd. Oh, I don't do social media. I don't do podcasts or what have you. And so I'd list out 10, 20 different questions. Then I just go layer by layer by layer by layer and just rip apart anything that seemed superficial. So we created in, in conscious coaching this three stages of internal identification framework that walk people through kind of how to do that, right? Like examine who you are. Great. Now deconstruct that. Now own it because there's a lot of people too, Mike, and maybe you'd agree, maybe you disagree, feel free, but that think that they have to coach a certain way because that's how John Wooden coached or that's how somebody else coached. There's this myth of the perfect coaching style. And you and I both know nothing could be further than the truth, but they do that because they don't know themselves. So they start to mimic somebody else. And that's what put really in part coach education in a really crummy place today. We have too many Indians, not enough chiefs, too many painters, not enough artists, people that just stand for something and want to really like double down on that kind of thing. I love that idea that there's not one perfect leadership style that we have to attain to. You have to be able to look inside and be able to see what your unique gifts are, what your passions are, what your skill set is. And in there, you talked about there are positive sides to both the light and the dark attributes. What will some of those dark attributes be? Let's just make sure to orient the audience a little bit here too. Anything has a virtue and vice. We all know the nice guy or gal. They'll do anything for anybody. Mike, do you have somebody in your mind's eye about somebody that's just the most nice, generous person ever? Oh, of course. So that's clearly a virtue. How could that become a vice? What's the dark side of that bright side? Well, the person I'm thinking about, they care so much for other people that sometimes they become a martyr and they don't have the energy to help others because now they're depleted. Right. And that's perfect, right? So it's the same thing with darker attributes. Now to orient the audience, these aren't terms that I made up, okay? Dark sides of behavior, these are things that have been in the literature for a very long time. And I'll reference one article by Andrew Cruikshank and Dave Collins from the University of Central Lancashire, where they talk about dark-sided insights from team leaders. And really two psychologists with the last name Hogan were amongst the first to really popularize dark-sided leadership. And that is kind of looking at things that we consider typically socially undesirable. So let's look at the dark triad, for example, a research term. There's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. Now, when we hear psychopathy, many people think psychopath and they think killer. That's not the truth. Everybody, based on big five personality traits, has 
subclinical levels of different things of psychopathy or narcissism. There are people, if you're competitive and you want to be the best in your field, but you're not an ass, right? Pardon my language, but you're not somebody that goes around and thinks you're the smartest person in the room all the time. You don't treat other people like idiots. You have displays of subclinical narcissism. You think anybody that wants to run the country or be a head strength coach or do this, and they think they're the right person for the job, that is not just confidence. There's a dimensional scale. It's confidence to a point, but if you ardently believe you're the only one that can turn a program around, that is ranked. And again, I don't do this ranking. These are trained psychiatrists. There are levels of subclinical narcissism there. Well, psychopathy is the same way. We know people that are extremely empathetic and God bless them. But do you think, Mike, a surgeon, somebody who works in the trauma center that, boom, doors come open, somebody's 50 stab wounds. You know, we hear all this stuff. Does it pay for that person to be tremendously empathetic? No, not in that situation. No. And what we find is some of the best surgeons in the world actually rank low, lower than average on empathy and higher than average on psychopathy because psychopathy isn't about killing people. Psychopathy is about a healthy detachment. And again, it's dimensional. When I say dimensional, it's not like categorical. So if we're looking at biological sex, I'm not talking about gender somebody affiliates as. Biological sex, we know in vitro there is a male and a female. Or your wife could be pregnant or not. Not pregnant. She can't be kind of pregnant. She can be far along in pregnancy, but she can't be kind of pregnant. You are, or you aren't. That's categorical. When I'm talking about dimensional, we're talking about almost think of it as uh, knobs on the volume or the bass or the treble when you're turning up the music in the weight room. There are times where it pays for us to be less empathetic than other times. There are times where uh, if we look at Machiavellianism, Machiavellianism is all about strategy. And it gets a bad rap, Mike, because people think of Niccolo Machiavelli who wrote The Prince, which is a pretty dark book. But judging that book in the context of now compared to when it was written, where he talks about, hey, sometimes you got to rule with an iron fist and sometimes you got to love people. I think we all get that. And you and I talked off air that the most clear cut example of this gray area in leadership, because we fetishize the bright so much, is parenting. Everybody, as you said, Mike, thinks they know how to parent until they're a parent. And there's no one right way to parent. And even if there was in Western society, that ain't the right way to parent in Eastern society. You know, and so when you look at bright and dark sided traits, what we're trying to educate people how to do in art of coaching that they're not trained how to do is to leverage all of themselves instead of just the bright, wishy-washy, let's go, rah-rah version of themselves, because that's not what everybody responds to. One thing that I struggle with is you mentioned in the book being authentic, being yourself. How much of that do you want to be able to share with your athletes? I think about even as a parent, sometimes I have different personality traits that I might show with my friends. I'm out with my buddies. We're having a good time. That might not be the side I might show with my kids. How much transparency do you want to have with your athletes on some of these light traits, dark traits? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question. And we have a whole episode on our podcast about it with a gentleman named Darren Roberts, who worked at Red Bull and works with a number of extreme sport athletes, former military himself over in the UK. The answer is one you're not going to like. It's contextual. So I'll give you a case study. Obviously, I'm not going to share my hospitalization story with 13-year-old Jimmy. Unless Jimmy's going through something else. And when I did write that chapter in the book, I did have people who had eating disorders or exercise disorders or people that even had cancer or some other stuff reach out who wanted to share their story. And believe it or not, that's actually a part of our business now at Art of Coaching is we help coaches 
who are extremely humble and don't want to seem like they're coming off as salesy or what have you, but they know they have a valuable story. We help them tell that story. We help them do that. But I'm not going to just open that up to everybody. Communication and building rapport is a dance. There was an individual that I worked with at one point in time who he came in, nine-time NFL pro bowler, and he was really upset. I mean, really not listening. I'm running a group of 20 to 30 guys and it wasn't characteristic of him, Mike. You know, so I went over to him and I'm like, what's the deal? I'm going to change some things just to protect his identity a little bit in case anybody I worked with in the past knows who I'm talking about. I want to respect this. But he essentially said, hey, ever since I made it into the NFL, my family who comes from a lower socioeconomic background expects me to pay for everything. My brother's in jail. My mom wants this, that, and what have you. And I've done that. I've given them money. I bought mom a house. I've done this. And I went to Vegas for a weekend and they got on my Instagram and they're mad at me. You know, they basically are like, how can you do that? We're struggling and you're out there getting lazy and and all this stuff. And he's like, he started tearing up anger tears, right? He's like, I worked for this. I did this. And granted, they supported me, but when is it ever enough? If I have to pay for their support and unwavering love, then I don't need that in my life. Then I remember I said something so awful. I go, yeah, man, I get it. And he goes, no, you don't get it. What I was trying to say is I'm hearing, I'm listening, I'm absorbing what you're saying. I didn't mean to say, I get it. Like I've been through that. And he's like, and I'm cleaning this up for your show, but he's like, how the F would you know what I'm talking about? He's like, you're a white boy from Omaha, Nebraska. And, and I was like, yo, so here's an example of how I leverage a dark trait. I could say, you're right. I'm really sorry. Let's start from ground one. But I looked at him because there were some things, Mike, he didn't know about me. And I said, yo, First of all, don't ever come at me like that. That's not how I meant this. I misspoke, granted. But what I was trying to say is I understand these situations too. And while I haven't been in your shoes and I could not imagine that, and I wanted to make sure he heard that, I said, I can't imagine that. But dude, my brother got stabbed in my first internship. I'm at an internship at Athletes Performance in Florida, now Exos. My brother got stabbed by a guy that was high on cocaine. And I asked my mom, I'm like, should I come back? I'm in Florida. He's in Nebraska. You know, my brother and I aren't close, but I don't need to be close to my brother to want to make sure my brother's alive. We just have some sibling stuff that any family works through. And I remember if I left, they basically said, we can't guarantee you your internship's going to be here. And they didn't say that in an awful way. They were just stating facts. They need help. They don't know how long I'd be gone. It just is what it is, right? And I had to make the decision. I ended up staying. You know, I ended up staying. And so I just think it depends on the relationship. It depends on the nature of the conversation. This is a guy that I could be real with. We were on that level. Granted, I turned up the heat on him a little bit. But once he heard that, he was like, yo, I didn't, first of all, I had no idea. And then we were able to build a closer relationship off that. I would say one of the biggest misnomers, Mike, is I'll never forget one time I went in, and this is an extension answering your question. I went into a school that I was asked to consult with. I was brought in by their leadership, athletic director, so on and so forth. And that's always an honor. Like I never go into any school. If I came into Gonzaga, I'm not coming in as some know-it-all. I want to learn and I want to help. That's it. But the football strength coach felt some kind of way by an external coach coming in to talk about this stuff. And I remember he goes, all right, Mr. Conscious Coaching Guy. And he throws his roster on the table and goes, tell me how to coach all my athletes. And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, well, you're the guy that tells us how to relate to people, how to convince them, how to change their behavior, have that it. And I'm like, where is this coming? Like, first of all, like, I want to make sure you understand I'm here to help. But, you know, we started having a dialogue and he goes, well, listen, I don't have endless amounts of time to sit down and doctor fill it with the guys that I coach. And I just looked at him at the point. I was like, listen, 
nobody in, anywhere in my book says that. And I've never coached. Well, now I have, but like my, the predominance of my career is not one-on-one, right? I've always coached athletes, private sector or college. And I'm like, if you can sit there and ask your athletes about how they're eating, how they're sleeping, how their life is, all that over the course of them lifting during their rest periods or what have you, and you're saying that you can't get to know them or relate to them on that level through all those micro interactions through the course of the year, you might want to get out of coaching. I'm just sitting there like, what are we talking about here? You talk about hooking people up with vests to measure GPS data. We talk about Tendo units, all this stuff, but you can't have a five second micro interaction with them. You don't have time. Give me a break. And that's what like concerns me about coaching is are people really getting into this because they want to work with people or are they getting into it because they want to work with technology and weights? That's concerning. I think the context is so important. And that's what I liked about the book is part of the context is understanding the athlete because the answer you gave for athlete X is going to be different from the response you're going to give to athlete 100%. Y. So let's go through some of these archetypes. And that was kind of the bulk of the book. As you were defining some of these archetypes, I was actually smiling because as you mentioned, someone like the novice or the politician or the self-sabotager, I could literally see an athlete's face come up and say, oh, that's how they are. And then it was great as you gave techniques, you described what that personality or the archetype might be, and then ways to be able to be successful and communicate and build a relationship with them. So would you mind kind of going over the concept of archetypes and how that could be useful for coaches? Yeah, not at all. And I appreciate the way that you laid that out. I'd say the way that we think about it, especially if you're a strength coach listening in, is we think of archetypes and the use of matching archetypes to the influence tactics, things that we talk about in our courses is periodization for people. We know that we're chasing certain adaptations in the weight room and we got to use certain training protocols. It's no different in this. We know that athletes have different personalities and everybody does and you got to use different communication tactics. I do want to say this, if you'll allow me, Mike, I do need to make sure everybody understands that when I talk about archetypes in the book, an archetype is a mode. It's a model of something. It's an example, like a hero in a movie or a villain or the person that posts nothing but political stuff on social media or the woman who it's nothing but cat photos. It's an example of something. Nobody is one archetype in a vacuum. And I say that because as is the nature of social media, somebody that didn't read my book once thought that I was suggesting that we were labeling athletes. We're not labeling anybody. What we're doing is we're saying, hey, there's common examples of behavior that we see in context. An athlete might be manipulative and non-responsive and kind of just overall, quote unquote, difficult persona in the weight room. But in the context of their sport or their family life, they may be a wonderful individual. There might be somebody that views themselves as an ardent leader of the team in one situation, yet when they're put in unfamiliar territory they fade to black, right? They're not that person. So when we talk about archetypes, I just want to make sure coaches don't get lazy. We're not saying label your players, always coach them this way. I'm sorry, guys. The art of coaching is not that simple. And that's the biggest lie you've all been told is this isn't as simple as the weight room. You have to constantly reevaluate and evaluate fit. It's always about fit. You have to be able to understand who these people are. So getting into the archetype now, and again, just examples of archetypes, the key here is to recognize that we all display different forms of behavior. And I gave examples of that uh, a moment ago. So let's go over one archetype in particular. We look at the royal. The royal is somebody whose persona is typically that of entitled, they're superior to others. 
this could be the five-star athlete that's been heralded by their newspaper. And man, they just tore it up their whole life. They've never really known struggle as it pertains to sport. Well, there's strengths there. That's great that they have high self-esteem. They're confident and, and, and they're likely very competent. I mean, there's Dunning-Kruger in certain circumstances, but let's put that aside from now. Uh, but there's weaknesses as well, right? There's excessive pride, which we know comes before a fall. They tend to seek status, which can defocus them a lot, right? They're, they're a little bit in love with themselves. And there's a sense of entitlement that can come along with that. And so common motivations of these individuals is they want recognition. They always want to display their strengths and, and they're going to seek opportunities when they can also muffle or hide their weaknesses. If you think about somebody that avoids activities where they lack full confidence and they can be difficult to coach in some aspects of their career, what do you do? Well, one example and just one, because it's not to try to summarize a 300 page book is not something I can do easily. You ask questions about them to build rapport, relate new activities that they may be unfamiliar with to stuff they've already mastered and they're great at, right? Stuff that they take pride in. Praise an athlete who excels at something that the Royal avoids, right? So for example, if you have a Royal that's like got the bench press record in the weight room, but man, their shoulders are rounded forward, their deadlifts weak or their cleans trash, or they can't do a Turkish get up or they can't move well, start praising things that they don't inherently already have mastered. And a hundred percent that's manipulating, but for an altruistic thing, right? Now you're saying, damn, that person's able to do three by 10 pull-ups with 25 pounds added to their vest. Or, you know, I've never liked leaderboards to begin with. We typically have something where they have to do a mix of things. So they have to, yes, bench press a certain amount. They have to squat a certain amount, deadlift, pull up, but they also have to like a Turkish, they have to be well-rounded, right? It, It encompasses all human movements, but that's one example. You're speaking to what they seek so that they can try to get that. I'll give another example. So the leader, self-explanatory, is typically somebody that they bring out the best in others. They're very focused on leadership, achievement of goals, bonding. And a lot of this, how we can tease out too, is not just observation of their behaviors in context, but we have something at Art of Coaching. We have a drives quiz, and we've given this to our athletes. So people can go to artofcoaching.com forward slash what drives you. I don't know if you put it in your show notes or what have you, but we have a way that people can easily send this stuff out via text, email, whatever, get an idea of their staff, their athletes. And and we have it scaled and scored in a way that even if they lie with some of their answers, you're going to get some pretty good data. But, you know, when you're looking at a leader, obviously this is somebody that's charismatic, they're trustworthy, they're hardworking. But as you alluded to earlier, they can also carry the burden of their peers. There's excessive pride there sometimes, not pride in terms of hubris, but pride in terms of they just want to be the one that shoulders the load. They value that. And forging alliances with leaders can certainly make your job easier, but there's a lot of things that you have to be aware of. There's some natural anxiety and burnout that can come with that. They can take the blame for a team's loss. They become stressed, have negative self-talk. So a lot of this with leaders, you gain power by giving them power. You certainly want to show that you appreciate and support them and you want them to galvanize their peers. But I think also like helping them understand boundaries and being consistent, establishing clear expectations, not only of like what they need to do within the team, but like, hey, when is it somebody else's job to motivate themselves? You can't always help somebody else out of certain circumstances. And I know certain coaches, I don't, I don't believe that. Yeah, there's a reason Bruce Lee said the teacher appears when the student is ready. And so I think with leaders, you've got to make sure that you hold them accountable, not just for doing the things that stereotypical leaders are supposed to do, but also the things that leaders are not supposed to do. Sometimes you're a great leader by letting go of something. Sometimes you're a great leader by not going all out. 
you got to kind of lose the battle to win the war sometimes. So I think that the tangible piece there is people shouldn't always take advantage of the leader. You got to be aware of the dark side as well. You don't want to burn them out because these people just won't stop. Let's go with the manipulator. Let's go with somebody that's got a hidden agenda. Every locker room's got them. And if you guys are taking notes and you're trying to go fast, don't worry. These are in the book. And then we also, like I said, we have an online course at CEU approved through the NSCA called Bought In. You can find it all at artofcoaching.com and you get a whole play call sheet. So we have archetype, persona, common motivation, strengths, weaknesses, risks, opportunities, communication tactics, all laid out. So, and I know your listeners can't see this, Mike. So literally they could go out on the floor and have it. That's a part of that course. But the manipulator, these are people that are charismatic, which again is a double-edged trait, just like anything. They're typically pretty analytical and they're flexible in their behavior. You actually need to respect the manipulator because when you look at the term manipulate in the dictionary, one of the key definitions is somebody that just wields something skillfully. We manipulate things all the time. It pays to have some people that are manipulative, but if we're talking about in a toxic context, the, the trouble with these people is they can influence the damn locker room now. They're always looking for some kind of control, but they won't go after it in an overt way that's obvious. They're not going to try to be the clown in the weight room. They're not going to always show you what they're doing. Where they make headway is in the locker room or outside of the facility. They're just really skilled at being able to get into people's ears, right? And they can undermine your authority. They kind of use this gift of gab or even their charismatic personality to inspire belief and trust in others. And and that's what they're going to lean on. And so what you have to do, one, is to be able to even suss it out, you need eyes. So you've got to ask trustworthy coaches, administrators, maybe even other members of the team. And this is where you have to have this kind of skill of questioning to observe how do they behave in this context? How are they in their classes? How are they in this? Oh, you went, let's say a guy named Joseph is a manipulative individual. Oh, you and Joseph went out and did this this weekend. Nice. You guys get into, right? Even if they're lying, you want to get stories and intel about this individual. You also want to kind of see, and, and you can usually tell, I mean, one of the hallmark manipulators that I dealt with, and we ended up actually becoming great friends down the line as they matured, is they'd always come up and be like, okay, coach. Yep. Got it. Coach your way, coach. They're almost a little bit above and beyond. They want to show you commitment. They want you to have a reason of like, well, I'm going to hide in plain sight. I'm not going to sit there and go against what he says or what she says or what have you. I'm going to hide in plain sight. And I think just letting them know you're onto their game. You know, sometimes you got to call a spade a spade and just say, listen, like, what's your ultimate goal here? And don't tell me what I want to hear. I really want to know. And you'll start to notice because guys or gals, again, I'm going to use guys as a universal term, gender nonwithstanding. You start to see who do they start to avoid? Who are they drawn to? All these kinds of things. So it's tricky because it's got to be evaluated in context, but it comes from close observation, watching, kind of creating some intel in different places and observing that. And if it gets really bad, you just got to address it head on. I've told a guy once, listen, frankly, I think you're full of it. And this is why I think you're full of it. And you can either get on board or you're not. And some coaches may not think that's okay in today's day and age whatever. You know, you got to fight fire with fire sometimes. So I know that gives a little bit beating around the bush, but the answer is, is I could go into a team and there's three or four different types of manipulators. The the key thing is patience. Don't jump into it. You got to make sure you're seeing what you're seeing and you got to kind of be able to go bar for bar with a little bit. So they recognize that you're onto them and you can set them up in a lot of different ways too, but we can talk about that later if you want. Well, as a coach, and we think about progressing our athletes, helping them improve, 
Are we trying to make them a better version if we take someone like the manipulator? Are we trying to bring out the best version of them as a manipulator? Or are we actually trying to transform them into what we consider a different archetype? No, I don't think you want to transform people in archetypes. They'll do that themselves depending on the context. Again, nobody is ever, ever, ever one archetype all the time. If you were to look at how I am in my day-to-day or how I was as an athlete, I'm really a Wolverine. I'm somebody that I don't really like to be bothered. I'm pretty introverted. You'd never expect that based on how loquacious I am when I'm a guest on somebody else's podcast. But the minute I get off this, I have like 30 minutes before my next call. I shut it down. I don't want to be bothered. I'm not answering texts. And so, but there's other times, like if you invited me and we don't know each other well yet, right? We're just meeting one another. If you invited me to your household, I'm going to be something different, even though that inner Wolverine is still very much there. And even though I may want to leave at eight o'clock, I'm going to be polite and I'm going to show you what you need to see to make sure you understand. I value the invitation because I do. Being complex or being in a bad mood doesn't mean you're not appreciative. That's circumstantial. That's periodic, right? Have you ever gone to somebody's house or gone to meet somebody for dinner, of course, pre-COVID, and you didn't really want to go, but you wore a different face just because you wanted to respect them and, or maybe uh, appease your wife. Oh, of course. Right. It's impression management. And again, not like we have a whole episode on this. There's tons of literature behind it, but that's the reality. And so I don't think you need to change somebody. You need to work with the tool you have. That would be like, if you got a guy or gal that needs to gain 10 pounds lean mass, are you going to try to change their anthropometry? Well, yeah, through training, you're not going to change how they were put together. You're not going to change anatomically the base of how they are. You're going to say, we got to maximize the build. And so again, I can't emphasize it enough. Leveraging influence tactics, archetypes, and knowledge of the art of coaching is periodizing for people in the same way that program design is periodizing for performance or bringing that periodization to life, so to speak. It's all maximizing what you have. And that's why coaches have to be trained in it. I have to be trained in it and I'm researching it, right? I'm getting my doctorate in it. This is stuff does not come easy and you're not going to pick up just through an internship or for that matter, 20 years of experience in the job. You may not always have to deal with these things in context. How much of this is useful for the athlete themselves to know? I think about something like the Enneagram, which we've done with our team in the past. And it was fun for them to be able to say, oh, I'm a three with a two wing. And it gave them some appreciation for maybe how they look at the world and even more so how their teammates might look at the world. How much of this do you share with the athletes? And I can only judge based off certain experiences. So When the book first came out, we had a number of athletes that I had coached that had moved on to administrative positions, either in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NCAA, whatever. And they had reached out just because we stayed in touch. They followed on Instagram. They found out about the book and they read it. And they got a kick out of it because they'd find themselves as that. And then they'd say, "We're, we're ordering it for our athletes, right? We were grateful for that. I remember going up to my wife and being like, the university of so-and-so just ordered 400 copies for their teams. And we had people that would reach out and say, I'm this, or in college, I was that in high school, I'm this. And we started creating kind of a field guide. They could mark, what are you in this situation? What are you in that situation? That's ended up why we made the drives quiz. Cause we wanted something where even if somebody couldn't get the book, they could at least go online and get a sample of that. And we tell them, take the quiz three times. Take it when you're happy, you feel good, you're clear of mind. Take it during another time where you're angry and you don't feel like you. Take it when you're tired because we want people to take it in context so they don't get a false positive. But I think even if somebody just identifies with three different archetypes, it's no different than if you want to look at concurrent training programs or what have you, or what some people consider the West Side method where you can have a hypertrophy day or volume day, you can have a max strength day, you can have dynamic effort day. 
most people are two to three at a time at any point in time. And I would say you right now, in the course of our conversation, you're definitely the leader because you're trying to bring out the best in me because you want great content for your podcast and your guests and you want a relationship, I would imagine. So you're the leader. You're clearly channeling the novice because you know the answer to some of these questions, but you know that your podcast is not about you. So you're asking questions of somebody else. And then you're also the specialist. You're going to bring out tidbits and things like that, that you know, and you're technical with the way that you're going to do your audio and the video of this. So that's a clear example of how people, things are multifactorial, they're concurrent, and you just got to see which one's the right gear for the right hill in the moment. Well, one of my favorite things about the whole book, and you touched on it just a little bit at the end, which is I want to have this skill set for my athletes, but what I really should want to have this skill set and this knowledge in the art of coaching is being a better spouse and a better parent. One thing that I really struggle with, and a lot of my friends that are strength coaches or basketball coaches struggle with, is we give so much energy to our teams. And then we come home and we don't supply that same energy to our family. And sometimes we even forget that we can use the skill set that we have to be able to love and encourage and motivate and have empathy for our players. We can have those same skill sets and use them with our family. Tell me about some of the work that you've been doing with that. How do you balance all these things out? What you're alluding to is kind of the last chapter in the book where we talk about just legacy in a non-wishy-washy way. And we continue to do it in a course that we have called Valued because I looked around and I'm not casting stones, right? Like I am very imperfect as a husband, very imperfect. But like you looked around strength and conditioning and you just saw a lot of coaches and this isn't just strength and conditioning, right? It's a, it's a microcosm. But I saw a lot of coaches who are broken, burnout, divorced, in bad relationships. And again, my parents were divorced. They're great friends. You know, I have a good friend who's on his third marriage. So that's not, again, casting stones. But I'm just saying that we don't look after ourselves. And some of these relationships made sense to not continue for these individuals, but some were a byproduct of the lifestyle. There's an individual that's in one of our mastermind programs right now, awesome individual, and he's super candid. He lost his wife due to trying to follow strength and conditioning, that path of being the division one football strength coach to no end. There were other things in there too, but that led to a lot of these issues. And it's very hard. I mean, I don't know if my wife would get it if she hadn't been a strength and conditioning coach and been in the field. And a lot of times you see people that are married to nurses or doctors or lawyers or things that it requires a lot of you as well. So we understand that. But just to talk about some things that I've worked on, I mean, like one, I think just being more aware of burnout and how to manage my energy, because there's no such thing as work-life balance. I don't care what anybody says. There's seasons. And we talk about this in our courses you know, just like there's seasons, competitive seasons, preseason, off season, your life's going to be seasons. I would say the end of January through July, that is a hundred percent on for me. And one thing I've grown to answer your question and give you a very specific example is I don't do a lot of other podcast interviews in that time of year. I don't do a lot of anything other than coach my athletes, speak on the weekends when we're doing corporate stuff, our own art of coaching apprenticeships. I am very selfish. And that's something I had to learn how to be Mike because I was big timed a lot coming up in the field. And there were people that didn't answer my emails. So I had it in my head that when I had some place of authority or standing, no matter how small, that I would answer every email, every this, every that. Well, man, I can tell you where that led me quick. Never once being present in the moment. I'm answering every LinkedIn message, every tweet, every DM, every email. 
And I got compassion fatigue is the best way to say it. Because the amount of times I answered, what book should I read? Should I squat? How do you get into this field? And so I would create a YouTube video on it. I would create a podcast on it. I would create a course on it. We have a whole course, Mike, on how to manage different parts of your career. And I thought if I do this, people will have an evergreen answer, right? I won't have to answer 48 messages. But then what would happen is I'd be like, oh, hey, that's a good question. I hear you. Check this out. Oh, well, I don't really have the time and the money. I was hoping you could just tell me. And then you really saw the lack of accountability in our field. It's so easy to just be like, oh, I don't have the time and the money. But then they're spending $400 or $1,000 on some periodization lecture or they're buying more books. None of us have a surplus of money laying around. So what I realize is if they're going to create boundaries, I need to too. So a lot of times what I just said is, hey, and I answer as many questions as I can, but you know, at this point we have free downloads on artofcoaching.com. I have courses. I have over 150 podcast episodes. I send them the link and I say, I understand this is challenging and here's a resource and you got to put the ball in their court. So I think once I was okay with being the bad guy, because then you did get some people that were like, oh, you're just trying to get me to buy your book or you're just trying to get me to listen to your podcast. I'm like, yeah, turns out I wrote a 300 page book that cost me $25,000 to publish because I thought it might be helpful. Heaven forbid you buy it off Amazon and I get two bucks. I promise you I'm getting rich from my book. So I started to learn if they're going to put up boundaries and it's a very small percentage, right? But you know what I mean. I'm going to put up boundaries as well. And so I'm not going to answer my phone be a certain time at night. If you ask what book to read and I send you our free downloadable reading list and then you tell me which I've actually gotten, well, which one should I start with? That's not getting a reply at this point. I've replied a million times, dude, I don't know you and I respect you, but I can't tell you that. And you wouldn't want me to because you're in a different place than I am in my career. So I think just being mindful of not falling victim to the suffering Olympics, there are coaches out there who think talking about money is anathema. Guys, I get it. You don't get in the field for the money. Who thinks you do? Does anybody ever tell their parents, I'm going to be a strength coach? And they're like, Damn it, Deborah, we raised him wrong. He just wants to be rich. It is the only profession I have ever seen that literally wants to shout on social media, it's not about the money. I've never heard uh, my dentist say that. I've never heard anybody else say it's not about the money so proudly. We're so proud in our humility about this. So when coaches like, they need to get over toxic attitudes about money. They need to get over toxic attitudes about branding, right? I had them too. I thought anybody that had a brand was a sellout. And then you realize your brand is just the story of who you are made real by what you do. Gonzaga's got a brand. The New York Yankees have a brand. Are they sellouts? Or are they organizations that provide opportunities for student athletes and individuals alike to broaden their horizons and create a living? So in short, I think what helps with all this is just get over the BS, First in, last out, money being toxic, branding being anathema, grow up. It's a young profession. Of course, there are people that do bad things with their brand. That's in every field. There's Dr. Oz's telling people to do stuff. There's charlatans everywhere. Us on our high horse of being a purist and not doing this stuff is not moving the profession forward. So after I got over all that, my life improved. My relationship with my wife improved. My relationship with myself improved because I didn't try to appease everybody all the time and be everything to everybody. I well, blacked man, out. I just want to say thank you so much for taking all the time to write a 300-page book that has helped <laughs> so many coaches 
all the additional resources you're doing with Art of Coaching is just phenomenal. That the way you're giving back and making our profession and making the world a better place. So honor having you on the show. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your products? Yeah, 100% artofcoaching.com. You'll have links to our podcast, all that. My book is available worldwide on Amazon. It's on Audible. I'm on Instagram. If you want access to all those things, one-stop shop, just go to artofcoaching.com. Free reading list, free intern guides, free videos, free everything. And it's all there, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Now that's a wrap on episode 72. And I hope you'll join me next week where I get to interview the strength coach for the number one women's basketball team in the nation, Stanford's Allie Kirshner. She shares how lateral thinking can help elevate your craft and why being a generalist might just be as important as being a specialist. Man, I have a fun job getting to interview and connect with all these great thinkers. And to all of you who are committed, well, earn your X. <laughs>